And now, Holy Spirit, we do pray that you would come and that you would breathe life into your word to us this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as uh, I was mentioning to the kids, I've been on a little bit of a health kick these last few months. What happened was, you know, we've been live streaming the service. Josh has a camera set up right over there, and it's a bit of a side profile. And so... (laughs) I was watching it back. It was a little unflattering. So I, you know, I realized it's time to start paying attention. Um, trying to eat healthier, trying to eat a little less, which is easy these days because food's so expensive. But um, as is always the case, as I say, I've done this, you know, every three years or so. I'm starting to feel pain from all the, you know, silly little floor exercises. They're most, they're nothing fancy. No Arnold Schwarzenegger there, but but it's starting to hurt a little bit. Um, and so I do wonder, is this working or am I getting less healthy? Is this exercise any good for me? Uh, today in our reading from Romans, Paul discusses this, this change in us uh, when we go from an unhealthy life to a healthy life. And it does bring up the question, is it working? Or even as Paul talks about living a life in the Spirit, how do I know that I have indeed received the Holy Spirit? Is my life better or is it maybe even more difficult? So last week we looked at the first six verses of Romans 8 and we looked at how Paul refers to the flesh, uh, meaning the body as a metaphor for a state of susceptibility to sin, or in other words, our old, self-centered life before we were saved. Paul explains that those who are saved are justified to stand before God despite their sin, because Jesus has already paid the penalty for our sin by dying on the cross. And this means we now, therefore, live a new life, a God-centered life. And this means setting our minds on the spirit. That doesn't mean just lofty spiritual affairs versus base physical affairs, but setting our minds on what the Holy Spirit desires, what he guides us to do with the lives that God has given us. So as we turn to our reading today and continue in Romans 8, we find that Paul continues this discussion. He says in verse 7, The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. That's an interesting revelation that those who are in the flesh, those who are still governed by self-centeredness, those who are still behaving as children of Adam, don't keep or submit to God's law because they can't. And this is because they are, as Paul has already explained, slaves to sin. So living according to the flesh or in the flesh not only describes our susceptibility to sin, not just that we're vulnerable to sin, but our pre-wiring to sin, that we are slaves to this disobedience. We cannot follow God's law 
and thus we cannot please him. We don't fail to keep God's law just because we're not strong enough or because we lack the willpower. It's not just because we mess up sometimes. We all sin because we have inherited sinfulness from Adam. It is in our pre-wiring. And that's frustrating. As a teacher, I would often say to my students, there are no problems, only solutions waiting to be found. But that way of thinking makes what Paul is saying even more frustrating, being told that sin isn't something we can fix just by putting our minds to it and trying hard enough. As we talked about last week, it's a part of who we are on the day we were born. And Paul goes on to explain that this is one of the reasons so many become hostile to God. Now, I don't know about you, but I can never get over how many professing non-believers, even professing atheists, are so hostile, so angry at God. How you hear so many rants of this anger, this hostility towards a God they claim doesn't exist. You know, I don't get angry at the tooth fairy. But I'm sure if we're being fair, we can all relate to this on some level. How many of us have sat about stewing in anger, pointing fingers, pointing blame over something that was ultimately our doing, our fault? How many of us are still also sometimes prone to blame God for things that are also ultimately our doing? It is our nature. We are slaves to this behavior because it is who we are. Or, at least, who we were. Paul continues in verse 9, You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. As Paul has already explained, and as, have, as we've been discussing over the last couple of months now, when we're baptized, we're buried with Christ. We die to the life of Adam, to the life of slavery to sin. And when we emerge from the water, we're resurrected to new life in Christ. We're set free from that slavery. We are no longer in the flesh, but now in the spirit. Because all who believe in Christ are indwelt by the spirit. They have the spirit of God living in them. And here's where Paul identifies this indispensable, indisputable, essential ingredient, this defining characteristic of Christians, of all Christians, the Holy Spirit living in us. Paul explains there are no spiritless Christians. When I first started ministry as a pastoral intern, there was a gentleman who used to come up to me every week on Sunday after every service and ask if he had been saved. He prayed the sinner's prayer again during the week, turning from a life of sin, turning to Christ, 
But sort of like me, after having a healthy snack, he wasn't sure if it had worked because he still kept sinning. So did that mean he was still a sinner? We've been reading in Paul's letter to the church in Rome that those who are in Christ are dead to sin. And yet most of us, if we're honest with ourselves, have to admit we still miss the mark. We still go on sinning. So some of us may, from time to time, feel inclined to wander this same question. Have I really been saved? Or did I not do it properly? Have you ever worried about whether or not you really are a Christian? Paul explains that a Christian is anyone who has the Spirit of God living in him or her. Have you ever asked yourselves, how do I know that I have received the Holy Spirit? If you have, then I hope I have some good news for you this morning. Receiving the Holy Spirit isn't something that we have to do properly in order to make it work. It's not something that we have to orchestrate or facilitate through saying the right words in the right posture, or creating the right space through the right music and the right mood lighting. Receiving the Holy Spirit is not something that you have to do because it's not something that you or we do. It's something that God does. If we invite the Holy Spirit, all we have to do is receive him to receive him, is truly allow God to do his work in us. How do we know if we've received the Holy Spirit? If you believe that Jesus Christ is God's Son and that eternal life comes through him, if you have sincerely trusted Christ for your salvation and acknowledged him as Lord, if you have accepted him, as your Lord and Savior, then you can be assured that you have the Holy Spirit because Jesus promised that he would send him. And God keeps his promises. So we can be assured that he is faithful and will and does send the Holy Spirit to all who believe. There's not some mysterious last step you need to take. If you believe in Jesus and have accepted him as your Lord and Savior, the Holy Spirit lives within you, and you are a Christian. That's not up for discussion. The Holy Spirit indwells believers at the point of salvation. And in doing so, provides believers with the ability, the capacity, the strength to put death to sinful behaviors, to put, death, to, put to death a life that is hostile to God, and to begin, to begin, living a life that is pleasing to God. Now again, having the Holy Spirit doesn't mean that you magically stop sinning. But what it does mean is that you want to. So if you're struggling with sin in your life, if you're fighting to stop sinning, if you're frustrated that you continue to struggle with sin, if you're praying that God would help you stop sinning, 
It doesn't mean that you're not a proper Christian, nor does it mean that the Holy Spirit isn't living in you. What it means is that the Holy Spirit is living in you, fighting for you, granting you that desire to live in accordance with the Spirit, with our minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mere fact that sin is a struggle for you and that you're not living in complacence or acceptance of your sin is evidence of the Spirit at work in you. Again, this is also not something we have to conjure up ourselves. The Holy Spirit living in us is doing it for us. So when Paul says in Romans 8, 9, you, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. It's not as a condemnation. It's not a warning. It's not something that should be a cause for concern. Rather, it's an encouragement, an affirmation, Now, that being said, we should also remember that the Holy Spirit is dynamic and not just one simple thing that happens to us. We should also remember that the Bible describes the Holy Spirit like a fire, and that though this fire doesn't go out in us, it is there burning, it can burn more brightly or less brightly. And that's why we continue to pray and sing and invite the Holy Spirit to fill us anew, to fan into flame that passion, that desire to live according to the Spirit and a receptiveness to allow Him to do His work in us that we may live in the Spirit and live in Christ. Now, Paul's thrown in a small aside there that we have to note here. If we look back at verse 9, Paul appears to alternate between describing living in the Spirit of God and living in the Spirit of Christ. And so, it is worth noting that this doesn't mean that there's no difference between God and Christ and the Spirit. It doesn't mean that we can just describe each interchangeably. That incorrect understanding is called modalism, which basically suggests that there's one God who simply plays different roles at different times, as if he were switching between different masks. Paul's not suggesting that there's no difference between God and Christ and the Spirit, but rather illustrating that God, God the Father, God the Son, Jesus Christ, and God the Holy Spirit share the same status and are all fully God and all work cooperatively in your growth and formation as a Christian, in your sanctification. Since you have now received the Holy Spirit and are now living in union with the Holy Spirit, the Bible shares that you will begin to act as Christ directs. It may be slowly, it may not be noticeable at first, but eventually in time, you will see that the Holy Spirit is transforming you, changing you. You will find help in your daily problems and in your praying. You will be equipped and empowered to serve God and to do His will. You will become a part of God's plan to build up His church, and you will receive life. 
Paul continues in verse 10 to remind all believers that the Holy Spirit grants us life, saying, but if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his Spirit who lives in you. Here. Last week we discussed ontology and how Though God's word describes different aspects of who we are, you know, our heart, mind, soul, body, this doesn't mean we have different, separate, conflicting persons dwelling within us, like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. The heart, soul, mind, and body are all a part of who we are. But Paul explains here that the bodies of Christians do still die, something that Nico raised during our our children's time. We didn't have time to get into that with them, but it is part of the message today. That our bodies are still under death's sentence, even though they're freed from this condemnation to sin. But there is still the blessed assurance of hope, of life. In the New Testament, God promised that he would raise the dead at the end of the age. And Paul reminds us, that as God has already raised Jesus, that this serves as a sure sign that the rest of the resurrection can and will happen someday as well. And Paul also explains that the Holy Spirit is God's promise, his guarantee of eternal life for those who believe in him. That the Spirit is within us now by faith, and that it is by this same faith that we are certain that we are given the promise to live with Christ forever. And this means we experience a change in our lives, and it may be slow. It may not be immediately noticeable for everybody, although it can be and certainly is for some as well. But this change means that we have a new status, a new family, a new future, as Paul goes on again to share in verse 14. Paul says, For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. Those in whom the Spirit dwells truly belong to God's family. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption. And by the Spirit we cry now, Abba, Father. Paul says, being a Christian doesn't make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Being a Christian doesn't mean having to give up the things we truly desire, the things we want, and living in bondage to a new oppressive set of rules and regulations. It means we are no longer slaves, no longer slaves to sin, no longer children of Adam, but rather that we are adopted as children of God. Abba. We can now cry out, Abba, Father. Abba is the Aramaic word for the Father, the term that Jesus himself used to address his Father in heaven. And we have been adopted and welcomed into this same relationship, this same status. Something to which the Spirit dwelling in us testifies as he cries out within us that God is our Abba, Father. 
Paul continues, now if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Paul was writing to a church in Rome. And in the Roman world in the first century AD, an adopted son was a son who was deliberately chosen by his adoptive father to bear his father's name, to inherit his father's estate, to carry on his father's legacy. The adopted son lost all rights in his old family, but gained all the rights of a legitimate child in his new family. He was in no way considered inferior in status to any of the biological children that were born to the father in question. As soon as we accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we receive the Holy Spirit. And, as Paul explains, the Spirit we received brings about our adoption. And we gain all the privileges and responsibilities of a child in God's family. What an incredible blessing, honor, privilege this change of status is. From slaves to sin to heirs of God. Paul also throws in the reminder, it's a privilege and a responsibility. If we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in Christ's sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. Paul also mentions the suffering that Christians will and must face. The reminder that if we live in union with Christ, if we follow him and follow in his footsteps, then we will face the same suffering as he did. For Paul's original readers, first century believers, the early church, this meant economic and social persecution. For some, it even meant death. We too must pay a price for following Jesus. In many parts of the world today, Christians face the same struggles as those faced by the early church. But even in countries like Canada, where Christianity is tolerated, to live as Jesus did, serving others, giving up one's rights, resisting pressures to conform to the world, all of this does come with a price. And we shouldn't forget this reality that this is part of the deal, especially as it becomes more and more difficult, especially in Canada where Christianity is less and less tolerated. Because if we forget that this is part of the deal, then we are prone to getting angry at God as though he's being unfair for allowing this suffering to happen to us if it does. Instead of remembering that this is part of our sanctification, our growth as well. Just as I mentioned, trying to be healthy, trying to do exercise doesn't always feel great. Sometimes it comes with a little pain and hopefully that pain leads to a little gain as they say. Just this week I heard someone say on the radio that most times when we do encounter suffering, we shouldn't think of it so much as being broken down, but rather as being planted. As God planting us in that situation so that we may grow from it. And Paul is quick to add this reminder that we share in his sufferings in order that 
we may also share in his glory. So that again, we see this isn't a message of warning or condemnation. It is a message of hope and assurance. It is a reminder of what an outstanding privilege it is to be led by the Spirit, to be children of God. We may not always feel as though we belong to God, but in His grace, God has sent the Holy Spirit as witness, as evidence that we do. His presence reminds us of who we are, God's children and heirs. And we may sometimes feel unsure about what this means, what it looks like, because we may sometimes fall into the trap of thinking about it, our inheritance as heirs in those lofty spiritual terms, as though it's something that's too far away in time and space to fully comprehend. But the reality is, as we see today in God's word, our inheritance as God's children and heirs is something that we have already received and is therefore something that we are already experiencing. God has already given us his best gifts. He's given us the gift of his son. He's given us the gift of his Holy Spirit. He's given us the gift of forgiveness. And he's given us the gift of our hope in eternal life. What a tremendous privilege it is to be a child of God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this tremendous privilege that you have adopted us as your own sons and daughters, that we have been granted this change in status from slaves to heirs in your kingdom. We realize that this is a privilege, but also bears responsibility. And so we also thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit living in us, who gives us the strength, the guidance, everything we need to live as Jesus' disciples, as your children. And so we pray again, Holy Spirit, would you fill us anew this morning? Would you come, make your presence known to us, that we may go out into the world as a living sacrifice, serving you in everything we do, glorifying your name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.